Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel Podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. A few weeks back, we started a series in the book of 1 Timothy. At the beginning of the year, I love to do this as a way for people to jump in and begin to study a book together and see what God would teach you in the midst of this. And over the past weeks, we've seen there are a couple of challenges we were introduced to in chapter 1. This is being written by the Apostle Paul at 63 or 64 AD. And Paul is writing to his friend Timothy, his protege, who he spent a dozen years of his life investing in. And Timothy is in the city of Ephesus, which is one of the three largest cities in the Roman Empire. And there are some challenges. The challenge number one was in Timothy's own life. He is struggling with discouragement, identity crisis. He wants to quit. Paul tells him multiple times, don't quit. And here's in part why he wants to quit is because in Ephesus, this original group of people who came to follow Jesus, they're part of a culture which has a whole bunch of different messages. And now what is happening is the good news, the original message of Jesus is being warped and twisted and new ideas are being added. And Paul calls this false teaching. And he is telling Timothy, Timothy, you have to, you absolutely have to address this false teaching because people are being deceived. The gospel is being diminished. So get on your task. Last week he said to pray. Specific words, especially to men, I want you to pray for all people and I want you to pray constantly. God does things through prayer. Now I warned you that this week, in my opinion, okay, and I'm not alone in this, this is maybe the most difficult passages, especially in the New Testament, to understand. They're incredibly challenging, and there are a myriad of perspectives regarding what we're about to read. So this has to do, ladies, get ready, like Paul's going to speak directly to you, and he's going to say some things. If you're familiar with the text, you'd be like, yeah, I've always wondered about this. If you're not familiar from, with the text, or you maybe we call it being spiritually unresolved. It's your first time reading anything in the Bible. Here's what might happen. You might get like a little like herky-jerky, like what in the world? Like, wow, what is Paul saying? That seems harsh. Now, I, I, I want to tell you a few things. Um, I've been publicly teaching the Bible for, it's getting close to 30 years. And I don't think this is because of cowardice. I, I have never publicly taught this passage of scripture. And here's why. Because it is hard to understand. And I have never felt prepared. I've never felt ready. And here's the other thing. There are brilliant people, men and women, who I respect their relationship with the text, I respect their teaching, I respect their scholarship, who have very different readings of this passage, okay? And so that's just humbling when people you respect come to a completely different conclusion. Nonetheless, we determined that we will walk through 1 Timothy, so we're gonna walk through all of 1 Timothy. It'd be really easy to skip this weekend. 
But I do want you to know um, what you're about to hear is terribly imperfect. I present it so humbly, but also let you know over the last few decades, well over 100 hours of study just into these four or five verses, just trying to decipher and understand. And so you ready? We're going to jump in. Buckle your seatbelts. 1 Timothy chapter 2 will begin at verse 9. I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So that's the first thing we'll tackle is the female appearance, all right? And it's just really weird being a guy talking about this, but we'll tackle it nonetheless, okay? Now, it's just going to get harder as we read on. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. The word quietness there is hushia. It's used earlier in the chapter. It really means to be uh, more humble and listening than to be uh, aggressively um, trying to persuade the conversation. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority. Really interesting word we'll look at. Only time used in the entire New Testament. Authentane from the word authenteo. Or to assume authority over a man, she must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So Paul goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 to talk through this. But women will be, now this is the hardest part, will be saved through childbearing. I talked to my wife about this. And she said it did not feel like salvation the four times I gave birth to a child, right? Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, they continue faith, love, and holiness with propriety. This word propriety was also used in verse nine. It's sophronusa, which is one of Plato's four cardinal virtues. And, and Paul brings it in twice. It's this, this sense of composure and respectability, all right? So we have to jump in this. And by the way, my wife is available for email follow-up and questions throughout the week, okay? I want to talk a little bit first about what do we do with really challenging texts? Because there are texts regarding human sexuality, regarding all kinds of things that are culturally abrasive, right? So what do we do when it comes to these challenging texts? I just want to give you three things. Whenever we face a text like this, number one, ask yourself, am I willing to submit my personal feelings to the text? So one of the things you have to decide is what is this book and what, what place of authority, what priority of authority do you allow it in your life? So personally, I am trying to submit the entirety of my life to this book. And that is not always easy, Right? And in issues like this, here's what we bring to the text. We bring our own culture. We bring a Christian culture. We bring a secular culture. And all of us have biases. All of us do. It's inevitable. In fact, I have to recognize some of the biases I bring to this text. So here's one bias. Uh, we were part of a group of churches called Foursquare. Foursquare was started exactly 100 years ago in 1923 by... 
a woman, all right? Her name was Amy Simple McPherson. So I have to acknowledge that for a significant part of my adult discipleship, I've been a part of a group of churches that were initiated, started by a woman. I have to realize that and I have to ask this, whether I like it or not, if I am submitting my life to the scriptures, am I willing to submit my perspective to the scripture? Okay, first thing you do with difficult tasks, text. Here's the second thing when it comes to a tough task, text, ask, is this consistent with the rest of scripture? So there are things that are kind of like outlier things. And a great question to ask is rather than build an entire philosophy or theology on that, we want to look at this book as a whole. Okay, if there's something that happens outside of normative, we need to ask ourselves, okay, is something unique happening in that time and place where there was direction given that was dis- different than the whole, okay? And we'll look at that in just a moment. Here's the third question to ask in challenging texts. Is this a gospel issue? Underneath, you'll see the word kerygma. Here's what I mean by that. <clears throat> this has been very, very helpful for me. Do you know that um, people who love Jesus and study the Bible can come to very different conclusions regarding different things, this text in particular. What did the early church do about that? <clears throat> well, the early church said, because there are all these, imagine the Bible is not going to be available to people because of printing presses and for hundreds of years of the early church. And so wherever Christianity went throughout the Roman Empire, there were local religious practices that would sometimes morph, it's called syncretism, would morph with the teachings of Jesus and things started getting really complicated and some of the teaching was unhealthy. So the early church fathers said this, let's figure out what are the essentials. And the Latin word for that is kerygma. And so they said, these are the things that we feel are absolutely non-negotiable that we're willing to fight over. And in that circle would be things like the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, the virgin birth, the fall of human beings, that human beings cannot save themselves, the return of Jesus. So they put into this, this circle of kerygma all these essentials, and these then became the first Christian creeds. They later morphed into things like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, but the earliest creeds, like the old Roman Creed, just covered these are the things that we think are absolutely essential. And then they created categories of saying like, these things are important, but they're not the gospel. And they made determinations that they would not divide over these issues. And then there were ongoing concentric circles of things that are speculative, but important to someone. So let me give you an example. In the center, we would put this idea that Jesus is coming back one day. We can't let go of that. It's a clear biblical teaching. When he comes back, how he comes back, the process of him coming back, that is incredibly unclear. And there are people who have very strong biblical skills who hold very different opinions. And so this is what I'd say. These are the type of things that are not essential and it's not worth breaking relationship over. The only things I will fight over are these things. So as we approach this text, know this. Humbly, I would say this is not a gospel issue. It is not. 
And so if you have a really different reading of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9 and on, I like, I love you. And I don't want to fight you about this. Um, it's not worth, like, you know in our world we just cancel people? You disagree with me? You're canceled. Right? That's not what we're going to do. We're going to love. If, if it comes to charisma, we'll fight over that. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about the context of Scripture as a whole, okay? I'm going to jump ahead in my notes and then I'll come back if that's all right with you guys. So what does the rest of scripture say about women? Because this is super clear, isn't it? And it seems really emphatic. Well, consistency with the rest of scripture. I'm just going to go through these really quickly. They're in the notes. You can go back and look at them. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have Miriam, who's the first prophetess from Exodus chapter 15. You've got Deborah in the book of Judges. Deborah led the nation of Israel for 60 years, six decades. You've got Esther, who influences a nation and calls them to prayer and worship and actually saves the nation from extermination. In Romans, in Romans chapter 16, you have Priscilla and Aquila who are a, a married couple. Priscilla is the female, and she has an ongoing teaching ministry. In fact, she teaches Apollos, who is going to be one of the early church leaders. In Romans 16, you have the mention of two apostles, Andronicus and Junia, and Paul says they are prominent among the apostles. Junia is a woman. So, okay, we start saying, okay, the whole of Scripture, you've got women who are apostles, and you've got Phoebe who is a deacon. In the next chapter, 2 Timothy, Paul seems to say that only men can be deacons. So what is happening? If we moved on beyond that, Galatians. I think this is an important Scripture, not directly related. But in Galatians 3, Paul writes this, the same guy that just wrote 1 Timothy chapter 2. There's no longer a Greek nor Jew, slave or free, male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. In the book of Acts, you have Philip who has four daughters and they're all prophetesses. They all speak messages on behalf of God to the church. You've got Colossians, you've got a woman named Nympha who appears to either lead or at least host a church in her home. You've got Lydia, you've got Priscilla and Aquila mentioned again. And then you have one other scripture that seems to align really closely with what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where Paul asks women to remain silent in the church. So you see, as we look at the overall context of Scripture, you're like, okay, there's these two passages that have these real clear parameters. But then, even in the rest of Paul's writings and in the Scripture as a whole, he seems to be doing something else. So how do we address that? This passage in particular is usually broken up into two camps, okay? And these camps have been arguing for 2,000 years, right? So we aren't going to solve it all today, but here's just the general idea. Number one would be a perspective on women called complementarian. So complementarianism, I'll define it for you. This is what it means. Men and women are equal in personhood. There is no difference in worth. Okay, I think everybody can agree on that. However, it goes on. Men and women have separate, though equal, roles in marriage, family life, the church, and elsewhere. The idea is that men and women complement each other for a more beautiful whole. However, in complementarianism, public teaching of the scriptures when men are present 
and the roles of pastor and elder are reserved for men only. Lots of people that I deeply respect who have written great things who hold to that view. Here would be the other camp. It's called egalitarianism. Egalitarianism. It's defined this way. Egalitarians agree with complementarians that men and women are equal in worth. So there's no question about that. However, egalitarianism goes further to state that men and women are considered equal in role capabilities as well. There are no gender restrictions on what roles men and women can fulfill in the church. Egalitarians may believe that there are, uh, there's, there's male-female instructions inside of marriage, but that doesn't move outside of marriage into culture as a whole, all right? So those are the two camps, and I don't know if I'm a part of a camp. I just want to understand the text and submit my perspective to that as much as possible. Okay, so we got three things we got to cover. Appearance of women, women learning, and being saved by childbirth. You ready? Let's do this. Number one, let's talk about the physical appearance of women. And in large part, I think Paul's saying this, I want substance over style. Substance over style. <clears throat> so Paul says, I, I don't want you to come to church adorned in these elaborate costumes he talks about gold and silver and pearls. Interestingly, did you know that the most expensive type of jewelry in the first century was pearls? It's by far more expensive than gold and silver. In fact, we have documentation that pearls oftentimes could cost in the hundreds of thousands to even the millions of dollars just because they were so hard to come by. And they were almost impossible to find the right runs and match them. We culture pearls. We have this whole different, we have people that can dive. So pearls were exorbitant. In Ephesus, which had a very wealthy upper class, there are multiple records of women wearing dresses around town that cost 900 to 1,000 denarii, which would have been equivalent for an average laborer three to three and a half years of work for one dress. Okay, so you're talking about dresses and pearls that are elaborate and incredibly expensive. In today's equivalent, I think it would be something like this. If you showed up to church dressed like you were going to the Oscars, right? People would go like, oh, isn't she a little cold in that outfit? <laughs> um, <laughs> look at that blink. The whole reason that you dress up going to the Oscars is what? You want people to look at you, right? Now, here's an important part of the historical context. Um, we've got to remember what is happening at the core in the city of Ephesus. I skipped over this, but I'm going to go back. I want to show you a picture of what is happening in Ephesus. This is the temple to the goddess Artemis. It was finished in 550 BC. It took 100 years, a full century to build. It is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. What was incredibly unique about it was not just its size, but the materials used. It was completely fashioned out of white marble. And so it had this overwhelming 
brilliant appearance when you showed in. There's 127 of these columns that were all 60 feet tall. It's twice the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It is 21 times the size of Solomon's temple. An entire month of the year would be dedicated to the worship of Artemis. They worshiped her around the calendar, but one whole month you took it off and it was a month to celebrate the goddess Artemis. And this is what she looked like. These are the two main representations. One, she was a huntress goddess. She was the mother earth goddess. She was a perpetual virgin and she appeared in nature. She was behind fruitfulness and vitality. And then in temples, she was represented this way. This is another picture. The goddess Artemis. And you're like, what is all that? Well, Artemis, because she nurtured the world, had many breasts. Okay, so those are all breasts, in case you were wondering. And she was known to suckle the nations. That was one of her, her, she kept everybody alive, right? And then below are all these different animal genres that everything came from her womb, right? It all came from her. So here's what happened in Artemis worship in terms of appearance and dress. Women were chosen to be the priestesses of Artemis. No men were involved in the worship of Artemis whatsoever. None. Women were chosen around their 14th birthday. And they served until their 21st birthday. And the women only came from the most wealthy parts of Ephesian culture. And here's why. It's because if you represented the goddess Artemis, you walked around not in a not in some sort of priestess garment that was signified, but you walked around in an elaborate outfit where it left no question that you were one of the representatives, a priestess of Artemis. They will walk around literally in outfits that would be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars from age 14 to 21. Only the various wealthiest daughters could serve Artemis. And apparently, some of these people who served Artemis, some of these priestesses, are now becoming followers of Jesus. And guess how they dress up for church? Like they dressed up when they represented Artemis. And they walk into the room, and everybody's like, what? Here's three things I think Paul would ask of us. No, I want you to know, ladies, I do not think that Paul is asking you to shop for your clothes where nuns or hooderites shop for their clothes. I don't, I don't think that's the point, but I think he is asking these three questions. The first question would be this, are you aware of others? Are you aware of others? Because if I walked into a room and I'm wearing just bling upon, upon bling, right? Paul's like, I, I care so much more about the interior of your life. God cares more about the interior of your life. I don't know, my daughter is one of the most well-adjusted young women I know, but my heart, she's a teenager and she's, she's growing and feels awkward. The, the, the beauty emphasis that we put upon women and how that affected her growing up, just watch, like it broke my heart. There are all these expectations. And Paul says, when you come into church, are you aware of others? Are you aware that there are people who are impoverished? They worship Jesus just like you do, but they don't, they don't even know how they're gonna eat lunch tomorrow. And you walk in with all your money 
and, and you're like, look at me? Are you aware of men in the room who you might be a distraction to? Second question I think he's asking them is, did I come to church to flaunt or to worship? If, if I came in, my main purpose of coming to church is like, hey, everybody, look at me. Paul says, that's not why you come to church. I want you to come in. I want you to be in a worshipful posture. And anyway, those high heels, they're so hard to walk in. Just, just put on something comfortable, okay? Here's the third thing. Am I hoping people would look at me or look to Jesus? Ultimately, I think this is what it comes down to is if my hope when I enter into a, a small group or enter into a service like this is I just want people to be looking at me, there's something really wrong, right? I want people to be focused on Jesus. I want to be focused on Jesus. And with all these pearls and all my security fears, all I'm thinking about is my pearls. No, no, no. Just come think about the interior of your life, okay? So you want to know a totally corny way to remember this? Is it going to be beads or deeds, okay? And Paul says, make it be about who you are, not about how you look. All right, first, appearance. Number two, let's talk about women and learning because this one is increasingly challenging. Paul says, I want women everywhere to learn, but I want them to learn in quietness and submission. I do not allow a woman to have authority or to assume authority over a man. This may seem inconsequential, okay? But Paul wanted women to learn and that is unique. In the Greco-Roman world, most women were not educated. In Jewish society, women were not educated. This would be even true today. A recent trip I took to the Middle East within Islam, a similar culture to the ancient world, women are never taught anything about the Quran. They're not deemed worthy of being taught. In the ancient world, most anthropologists and scholars believe that a woman's literacy rate was 10% of the men's literacy rate. So in different classes, if in the upper class, 100% of the men were literate in Roman society, that would mean that only 10% of the women were literate. And as you move down from middle to even lower class, where there was maybe a 10% literacy rate among the poorest of the poor men, that would mean that 1% of the women were literate. And Paul says this, I want women to learn, but I want them to learn in the right way. So what is Paul getting at? He does a couple of things. I'm going to try to guard you from countless hours of grammatical and syntax discussions. Paul does one thing here that is really unique. He changes from the plural to the singular when he begins to talk about a woman having authority. All before this, he's talked about women plural, how you dress. Um, put your, you know, make sure it's deeds, not beads. And then he goes down and he says, I do not allow the woman to have authority over the man. Both are singular. What is he getting at? Another thing that's unique is Paul says to assume authority. That Greek word is authentain. Here's the challenging thing about that verb, that word. Authentain is only used once in the entire New Testament and it's used here. It is, there's about nine other words that Paul uses for authority in Greek, but he uses this one. And it is a word that is rarely used in all of Greek language in the first century. The times that it is used, I've gone back and read the most boring documents to try to figure out this authentane. 
is used in these ways. Number one, a, a master taking a slave is forced domination. Number two, it's used to describe a political coup. When one group usurps the authority of the present government, it's authentane. They take by force leadership. Number three, it is used to describe criminal activity. Uh, kidnapping and even murder. It's forceful domination of one person over the other. Why does Paul use this word authentane? Here's some of the cultural context that might help us. So in Ephesus, with Artemis, here's, here's the, the, uh, the legends behind Artemis. Did you know that she's the twin sister of Apollo? So Zeus and Leto were his mother and father, and she is pregnant. Leto is pregnant with twins, and the first child to come out is Artemis, and then in nine ongoing hard days of labor, eventually Apollo comes out. So one of the tenets of the religion of Artemis is the priority and authority of the firstborn female in a family. Very different than the rest of the Roman world. So in Ephesus, guess who the priestesses were? You had to be from a wealthy family and you had to be a firstborn female. Artemis always had authority over Apollo. Apollo made a lot more noise. She's the quiet nature goddess. But she had absolute authority. So in Ephesus, women led all religious endeavors. And in particular, a firstborn female within a family was the person who was most authoritative out of anyone else. And men would uh, submit to her. I think Paul's saying this. There are women who were part of the Artemis worship system who have come into your church and maybe they're firstborn females and they're taking Timothy, who we already know is a little bit passive and is struggling and wants to leave. And there are women who are arguing with Timothy out loud as he is teaching. There is no New Testament. The only way to keep the gospel intact is verbally, right? And Paul taught Timothy. And now Timothy is responsible for teaching the church in Ephesus. And there are women who are used to being the dominant figures. And one woman in particular who is saying, Timothy, that's crazy. We know this, that about 25 to 30 years later, there is a group of people in Ephesus led by women who create a brand new narrative about the Adam and Eve story. They rewrite the scriptures and they say this, that Eve was formed first, Adam was taken out of Eve, and Adam was the one who failed to stand up to the temptation of the enemy. That's the cult of Artemis, this morphing with Christian teaching. So there's a strong woman, and Paul's saying, I do not allow a woman to usurp authority, the woman to usurp authority over the man, you, Timothy. You cannot let that happen. Now, why does Paul bring into the, the uh, Adam and Eve story? Well, it could be that he's arguing this is how the creative order is, or is he arguing this? Eve, as far as we know in Genesis 1 and 2, was never told not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Only Adam was told. Adam's not created until 221. Adam was responsible for teaching Eve. Obviously, he didn't teach that very well, because what did Eve do? She came face to face with false teaching. 
The serpent brought false teaching. It won't matter. You do it. Your eyes will be opened. It's this whole thing of enlightenment. God's trying to hold you back. She takes it. Adam passively observes, and then he takes the fruit from Eve. I think in essence what Paul is saying here is this. Timothy, do not repeat the failure of Adam. In this new garden, this Ephesus, this church that I've created, there is a woman who has not been taught, but she is forceful. And she is trying to deceive the people in the church. And and Timothy, please do not be like Adam. You need to step forward and you need to tell her that what she is teaching is wrong until she can learn, until she can understand the gospel, until she's been trained, until she is humble. We cannot let this happen, all right? Now the third one, women are saved through childbirth. Okay. I think this is the one that actually has the clearest understanding. So the word saved in Greek is sozo, sozo. And sozo can mean two different things. It can mean spiritual salvation or it can mean physical salvation. I just want you to think it like our English word saved. Saved can mean, you can say, Jesus saved me. And what do you mean? That he rescued me, he forgave my sin, he reconciled me to God. Spiritually, he did this thing in me. You could also say, the doctor saved me. Had a long phone call with a dear friend of mine who had a heart attack. He's a pastor in California, and he said this week, he goes, the doctors saved me. What was he talking about? His physical life, right? The doctors intervened, saved his physical life. He's not saying that the doctors, you know, made it possible for him to be with God forever and eternity. Greek is the exact same thing. Childbirth in the ancient world was terrifying. In the Roman Empire, married women who were able to have children, their life expectancy, depending on the decade, was between 26 and 28 years of age. Because so many women and children died in the midst of childbirth, a female's life lasted 26 to 28 years. It was one of the only times in human history where men lived longer if there was no war. And so childbearing was terrifying. So could Paul be saying that women are saved through childbirth, not salvation, not spiritual, but God, like you'll be protected through the work of childbirth? Because Paul, Paul is the guy who's been talking about the only way to connect with God is through grace and forgiveness. Paul's the guy who says it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This not of yourself is a gift of God so that no man can boast. Anybody think, wait, childbearing saves me? What about women who were never able to have children? Like biologically there were issues. Like, sorry ladies. No, Paul obviously is saying something else. So Paul, I think, is saying, listen, that fear of, of childbearing God's going to save you as you continue in your faith and your love and your pursuit of Jesus. One other important cultural uh, addition that will, will, will affect this. I want to show you a picture. This is a pendant that women would wear, women who were pregnant. The day you found out you were pregnant, you would meet with a midwife, and a midwife would give you one of these. This is a pendant of Artemis. Artemis is the perpetual virgin, and she is the primary goddess who oversees all pregnant women. 
We have many historical documents that a husband had prayers that were written that you would travel all the way. If you, even if you didn't live in Ephesus, if your wife was pregnant, you would travel all the way to Ephesus to go to the temple and you would read these prayers to Artemis asking that she would protect your wife through childbearing. As a woman became closer and closer as labor started, she would not take this pendant off of her neck and there would be statues to Artemis throughout the room praying that Artemis would protect them from death and bring about a successful birth. In part, I think Paul is saying this. Artemis does not save you, ladies. You'll be saved through childbirth if you just continue in your discipleship. You've got you've to trust God that he is the one who is going to care for you. All right, a couple of conclusions, right? I want to walk through a couple of thoughts. Uh, Number one, there are two biological genders that are equally valuable and distinct. And I know even that statement in some arenas is like, what? God made males and females and he made them equal and he made them valuable and they have distinct strengths and potential vulnerabilities and he likes it that way, okay? We're made that way. Paul seems to be addressing, is my opinion, a very specific internal challenge present in the Ephesian church. So he later is going to write a book to the whole church. It's the book of Ephesians. But in this book, as he's writing to Timothy about these internal challenges, he is, he's, he's addressing something, some dynamic that's happening that is terribly unhealthy. Throughout history, men in leadership err in two extremes. And I think it's potential for women to do this. Men can either be passive or they can be dominating. And the Bible calls for men and for women who lead not to be in either extreme. Is you lead humbly and you lead confidently. When this passage was written, remember that no New Testament existed. The gospel, the good news had to be passed on verbally and it had to be guarded and Paul is not okay with a dominant woman in the church where Timothy is at changing the story of God that cannot happen I do not allow that woman to create some sort of coup in the Ephesian church Timothy you have to stop it quit being passive so we get to these big questions right should women be allowed to preach and teach in churches I'm going to say yes, but on three conditions which apply to anyone who teaches. Number one, they must be reliable people who have been taught and are now qualified to teach others. Okay? Man or woman, you just have to know at least something. Nobody's going to get it all figured out, but you have to have been prepared. Number two, they must have the gift of teaching. Number three, they must teach in a way that is not coercive or domineering. So here's my heart. I get that people have really different opinions about this, and I respect that. I, like, I've already heard from multiple people, friends of mine, by the way, they're all men, who um, <laughs> say, I listen to your teaching, totally disagree with you, but thanks for being brave enough to teach on that. Um, like, I love you. I get it. This is a tough passage, but here's my heart. I think God wants to raise up men and women who lead and teach in a godly way, who are humble and trained, 
who are passionate about who Jesus is and to the best of my ability, I'm not worried about the gender of the leaders that we produce. I'm worried about the quality and the spirituality of the leaders that we produce. And so in the days ahead, please just think through that. This is my best attempt at understanding a really different passage. And again, if you have a different opinion, like I'm humble, I get it. I've been back and forth on this thing for a lot of decades. But let's love each other. Guys, you okay? Ladies, you okay? All right. All right. Let's pray. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.